I heard that alarm and I thought, it's time for Shane to speak. Somebody set their alarm so they could leave right before he, I got up here. <laughs> you want to come up here and preach? Okay, um, on another note, John 14, we're going to look at John 14 and Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's the night before Jesus' execution, and the disciples have just eaten the Passover meal with him. It's the oddest Passover ever. Um, as, as at every Passover, at one point Jesus holds up the bread for the blessing, but this time... As all eyes look up to the bread, he tears it apart and says, this is my body. He then poured the wine, lifted the cup for the requisite blessing, but he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. All of you drink it. Things don't return to normal after the meal. They get stranger. So here are the 12. Jesus' inner circle, his most trusted friends. They have, as St. Peter once said, left everything to follow him. They've staked their lives on him, lost their friends for him, left their families for him. They've spent night and day with Jesus for the past three years, believing that he was the one who would reform Israel's government, overthrow their enemies, and lead the country to a new flowering of the kingdom of God on earth. They have sacrificed so much to see this dream fulfilled. And now after the meal is over, Jesus says something they never expected to hear. And they've heard some pretty extraordinary things. They have heard him issue commands to the wind and the waves. They've heard him rebuke kings and tell the most respected religious leaders in the country that they are hypocritical sons of hell. But nothing he ever said hit them like this, like a blow to the stomach. He told them he was leaving them. These men are more surprised and dismayed than any husband whose wife ever said, I'm leaving you. I mean, it is surreal. They feel sick to their stomachs. Jesus has dropped a bomb, and they're all shell-shocked. Peter demands to know where Jesus is going. When Jesus tells him, you can't go with me, Peter, like a petulant child, says, why can't I go with you? Then, as if the bad news were successive waves of some devastating tsunami, Jesus tells Peter, the leader of the Twelve, Peter the Rock, the faithful, that he'll disown Jesus before the night's through. Not just once, but three times. You couldn't have stunned the disciples more if you'd hit them with a hammer. This wasn't real. It was a nightmare. If Jesus said to them, by this time tomorrow, you will all be dead, they would not have been as shaken as they were by this. Now, it's important we understand the setting before we listen to our text. In isolation, the words I'm about to read to you sound beautiful and high and glorious, but they weren't spoken in isolation. They were spoken to men whose world had just been rocked. 
whose adrenaline is pumping, whose hearts are thumping, and whose minds are spinning. In that setting, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right after telling the disciples the most upsetting news they've ever heard, Jesus immediately says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It it seems like such a preposterous thing to say. But Jesus wouldn't have told them to do this if it were impossible. And if it's possible for them in this situation, it's possible for us. Even when a spouse says, I'm leaving, or the doctor says, you're dying, Jesus would not have told them to do it if it couldn't be done. Now, before we see how it can be done, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. So I think when we read this, we're likely to jump to the conclusion that what Jesus is saying is, don't get emotional over this. That is definitely not what he was saying. People in that time and place didn't think of the heart. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Did not think of the heart as the repository of emotions, but of choices. The heart had to do with the will. In the apostles' minds, feelings didn't emanate from the heart. They came from the stomach, which is an ancient idea that's been preserved in phrases like, I have butterflies in my stomach, or my stomach is doing flip-flops. When Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled, he wasn't saying, don't be upset or don't be sad. He was saying, don't change your resolve. Don't let these surprises change your commitment to God, to me, and to the kingdom. Don't give up, don't let go, don't fall away. Jesus' words here are not about being happy, they're about being strong. Steadfast and unmovable, to borrow St. Paul's phrase. When something unexpected, dreadful happens to us, and we let our hearts get all stirred up. That's what that word troubled means. You know, bridge over troubled water. This is that picture. All tr- troubled. Bad decisions and not just bad feelings are liable to be the result. The person whose spouse was unfaithful might have an affair. That's a terrible decision. The person who was insulted might gossip. The one hurt in a relationship might start keeping everyone at a distance. The person sinned against might sin again in turn by not forgiving. These are choices made by a heart that has been troubled. The resolve to do the right thing has temporarily been shaken loose. How do you keep your heart from being troubled? The best and perhaps the only way is to 
trust God, the Father Jesus told us about, and trust Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. See, that's the solution to the heart being troubled. Trust also in me. The trust Jesus is talking about is not a call to believe certain theological statements about Jesus, but an invitation to believe that he and his Father care about you and will care for you. It's a call to trust yourself to Jesus and to his Father, even when you can't see what's coming. It's a call to trust them when your world's been turned upside down. A dynamic, in that moment, trust. You got to know that the call to trust Jesus doesn't usually come when everything's going smoothly. It comes when our world gets rocked. It's when something bad happens to our kid and we're going out of our minds with worry that Jesus says, I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. It's when the doctor tells us he saw a tumor on the CT scan that Jesus says, I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. It's when the financial rug is pulled out from under us and we break our economic bones in the fall. Jesus says, I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. I think the disciples were reassured by Jesus' words. But guess what? That reassurance was blown away a few hours later when they saw him bloodied and barely recognizable being nailed to a cross. Was he still able to say, I've got this. I've got you. Trust me. It'd be like a guy on his way to the electric chair saying, trust me, I've got this, I'll take care of you. The wonder of it all is that he did have them. He was taking care of them even on the cross, especially on the cross. Nevertheless, what they thought he was going to do for them when he said, trust me, was completely mistaken. They didn't have the foggiest idea of what he was going to do to take care of them. Yet he did tell them what he was doing and why they could trust him. They just didn't understand. Here's, he said, this is my translation, in my father's house are many lodging places. If it weren't so, I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again for you to take you to be with me where I am. Now, that, that's going to need some explanation, but before we start unpacking it, I just want us to notice that Jesus told the disciples what he was going to do straight out. Trust me, I'm going to my father's house where there are many lodging places. I'm going to get one ready for each of you, and then I'll come back so that you can join me. Jesus tells them he's going to his father's house. Where have we heard those words on Jesus' lips before? Remember John chapter 2? Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a market. His father's house was the temple. His father's house was the temple. In Luke 2, his frightened mother comes looking for him, searches everywhere. Finally, they find him in the temple. He wondered why they were so upset. He asked 
Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? When Jesus used that phrase, he was talking about the temple. See, ancient peoples believed that temples, almost anywhere you went, ancient peoples believed that a temple was a place where heaven and earth met each other. Jews further believed that their temple, only their temple, was a scale model of the heavenly original, and that the two, the model and the original, were somehow connected. When Jesus tells his friends he's going to his father's house, he's talking about the temple, but not the model on earth, but the original. But the disciples may have thought he was going to the earthly temple, where just four days earlier he had taken over the court of the Gentiles in a day-long protest of corruption. The temple had many lodging places or rooms where people, like priests on duty, see priests came from all over the country and stayed in Jerusalem for a couple weeks. They would stay in these rooms, these lodging places. So when Jesus said he was going to the Father's house, to prepare rooms or lodging places, the disciples may have understood him to mean he was about to go back to the temple. Now, he was frank. They couldn't go with him now. Why? They didn't know. But he would get things prepared and come back for them when it was all settled. And you have to understand the temple is the heart of Jerusalem which is why what Jesus did led directly to his crucifixion. What he did on the day of the, the triumphal entry when he went into the temple and he threw people out and he took over the court of the Gentiles. But Jesus was talking about preparing a place in his father's presence for his disciples, a place he would prepare from a cross. But preparing a place for his disciples, and that includes us, if, if we believe in Jesus, if we are his people, is only half the program. He's also preparing us for the place. To enter and dwell in the Father's house, a person must be prepared, must be made holy and sanctified. While Jesus prepares lodging places in heaven for us, the Holy Spirit is preparing us to occupy them. And both aspects of the preparations are essential the way we get prepared for God's presence in heaven is to take in Christ's life on earth. After Jesus tells them he'll come back and gets them, he adds, you know the way to the place where I'm going, which was too much for Thomas. He blurts out, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus looks at them and says, I am and we've seen that I am before. It is spoken in the style of deity. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, hearing Jesus say, I am the way, would evoke connections in the disciples' minds and in the minds of John's readers that we might miss. For example, they would think, we probably don't, but they would think of Isaiah, who frequently spoke of the way in reference to the way by which Israel would return to God, would, the way out of exile, the way home. 
Jesus is that way. I am the way. Rabbis frequently referred to the Torah as the way. God's law, the way to live in the world with God and with others. Jesus is that way too. He's the way home after exile and lostness. He's the way of the Lord, the highway of holiness, the Torah of God for his people. He's the way out of ourself, or what we mistakenly think of as ourself, and into the true self, the self that is the, true to the idea God had when he made us. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. In biblical thought, the truth is not just getting the facts right, but getting oneself right, which is why the Bible speaks not only of knowing truth, but of doing truth. The person for whom Jesus is the way will not get lost in the brush and brambles of society's lies. And society is full of lies. In the same way, the truth is not just about getting facts right. Lies are not just about getting facts wrong. Lies are about getting you wrong, about leaving the way. Jesus is the way to your true self. Without him, you almost certainly get stuck in a false self. He is the life. And we talked about that last week. If you didn't hear that sermon, get a CD on your way out or listen online. It's not so much that Jesus leads us to the life, though that's true. It's that he imparts his life to us as we go with him, particularly as we trust him. That moment, that trust, not once in your life, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, but that ongoing, I trust you, is the moment at which we receive his life. Sometimes people say it's not the destination, but the journey. That's a false dichotomy. It's both. We reach the destination because of the journey. We take the journey because of the destination. And when we arrive at the destination, we're prepared for it because we've become something on the journey that we were not when we began. We're different because the way has given us the life. And it's changed us. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I think people often read that statement, which is about a person, Jesus. But in their minds, they think about a religion, which is Christianity. Apart from Christianity, no one comes to the Father. And, of course, if you think that way, that makes Christianity superior to other religions, and by extension, Christians superior to Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and any other religious group you can name. So hooray for our side, right? But let's think about what Jesus really said. He didn't say no one comes to the Father except through Christianity. He said no one comes to the Father except through me. Neither Christianity nor any other religion is the way to the Father. The way is not a religion, it's a person. There are people who've been in Christianity for years, for their whole lives, who are not in the way. And I know more than one person who first entered the way 
first believed in Jesus while thinking of traditional Christianity as a heresy. Notice, too, Jesus did not say no one comes to heaven except through me. He said no one comes to the Father except through me. See, many people from a variety of religions, not just Christianity, want to go to heaven when they die, if only to escape the other place. Yet some of those people have hardly ever thought about and have no interest in going to the Father. They want heaven only because they're worried there may be a hell, but they don't want the God of heaven. How will they enjoy heaven when they don't enjoy God? God made earth in such a way in our time here that we can avoid him or at least think that we're avoiding him. But there is no avoiding God in heaven. It's all about God. One will bump into him everywhere, which can't be pleasant for people who are all about themselves. You know, it would be prudent, and I would recommend you ask yourself and honestly answer this question. Do I care about God? Do I love him? Do I even like him? Do I want to spend eternity with him? So if you don't care about God, heaven will not be any better than hell. Maybe it'll be worse. Preachers often use this text to point to the exclusivity of the way. There is only one way to the Father. That's exclusive. But that way is not Christianity. It's Christ. People who hate the exclusivity of this verse, and there are many of them, like to say there are many paths to God. Well, maybe they're right. Maybe there are many paths, but there's only one way, and that is a person. The way is Jesus. Now, when I say maybe there are many paths, it's certainly not because I think anyone can come to the Father any way they choose. I think no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. But the paths by which they may come to the Father through Jesus are manifold. I came because my brother got sick and 18 months later died. I didn't come to the Father because I was intellectually convinced, but because I was personally challenged. You may have come because you suddenly saw it all. All the pieces came together. Perhaps the path you followed was a hard-packed intellectual one. Someone else came because they were seeking joy. Their paths lined with flowers. Someone else came out of a path that led from the slough of addiction. Lots of paths, but there's only one way. Jesus. Jesus is the way to the Father, the God who made us and for whom we exist. He is the truth, the truth about why we're here and who we are meant to be. Not some abstract theory, but truth on which you can take your stand. And he's the life. Life that's more than ongoing existence Existence after death, life that is death-defeating, joy-inspiring, love-producing, God-experiencing. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. If he is yours, you are on the way. To the truth.
and the life that is life indeed. Let's pray. Lord, if there is something in what we've just been thinking about and talking about that will nourish our souls, would you help us take that in? Anything that's chaff, Lord, would you just blow away? But may your word to us become like a fire in our bones. And not leave us, but transform us. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.